If you want to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 8, we're still working through uh, this passage. I'm going to read three verses from this section, the three kind of verses that we're focusing on. This is the third um, kind of sermon in dealing with what it means to be free, and we're talking about our freedom. So if you're taking your notes in your manual, I kind of want to keep them in the area where we're working at. It's pages 76 through 78. And we're actually going to be talking on some of those particular topics today as we look at this third kind of aspect of freedom. We've talked about spiritual freedom. We talked about religious freedom. And today we're talking about emotional freedom. In John chapter 8, verses 31 through 36, I'm going to read 31, 32, and 36 uh, for you now. It says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And he jumps down to verse 36, and he says, So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So over the last couple of weeks, we've been just trying to really understand what the Bible means when it says we are free indeed and, and kind of grasping that concept. So we, we've talked about these different biblical freedoms or, this, or the aspects of biblical freedom, which spiritual freedom, that we're free from the penalty and the power of sin, that, that Jesus took uh, the, the legal uh, uh damnation or this, this legal problem we had with God where we had transgressed his law and, and we were due the wrath of God and Jesus set us free from that. Then we talked about religious freedom, which is really freedom from religion itself, right? That we don't have to, to do and, and follow some kind of dogma, that we are not trying to make amends with God, that, that religion and the practice of religion is, is humanity's kind of way of trying to fix things with God by doing all the right things that somehow they can curry his favor. But because we've been set free, because of grace and the mercy of God that set us free from our, our debt to God, that we don't have to rely on our, our self-efforts. We don't have to rely on religion to, to, to make amends for us, that we're free from religion itself. And that's where the idea of what we often talk about is, you know, it's really about a relationship. It's not about a religion. Now, these two are what I would call propositional truths, that these are things that God did, that, that we really don't have any say-so in. God chose to free us spiritually, right? He, it's His grace and, and His mercy, and this is what He's done for us, right? And, and that the consequence of that is you really are free from religion, that you know you're a disciple and you have a relationship with God. And, and that's a truth that, that is just, a, is, just is, right, for those who are believers. And today we're going to be talking about what it means is kind of the results of these other two things. Since we're free spiritually, since we're in a right relationship with God and we don't have to worry about religion and, and it's about a relationship, well, how does that affect us Emotionally, how does that affect our living? Um, and so, what we must understand is that the effects of sin is what well, it's from the effects of sin that we're saved from, right? When we talk about salvation, it's really the salvation is from the effects of sin. And one of the number one effect of sin is death, right? And so we're saved from death, right? The other one is, is that we're religious and we try to make up our ways and we're, we're saved from that. We don't have to make up with God. We don't have to make amends on ourselves. 
And then finally, living in a broken world, our emotions are damaged, and we struggle with emotions, and we're actually saved from some of that hardship. And so today we're going to be this final application of what it, how it kind of comes down from spiritual freedom to religious freedom to how we live, how our living, our emotions, our day in and day out life is affected. And so a couple of things I, I want to talk about emotions. Each week I've kind of talked about, you know, what freedom is. We talked about what religion is. And I, I just kind of want to share just some broad ideas about emotions, right, because we all have them, I hope. Right? So, so the truth is that emotions are a real part of human existence. Whoops. So they're real. I mean, we have them. Um, that's part of our life. Uh, they're, they're there all the time. One of the things I know about emotions, that emotions are loud. And what I mean by that is when we have emotions, they are like the loudest voice in our head. You know, when I'm happy, I'm really happy. When I'm sad, I'm really sad. When I'm, uh, when I'm uh, mad, I'm really mad. And our emotions, what I mean by them being loud is they kind of dominate our lives. Whatever emotion we're having at one point really it affects how we interact with other people, how we go about our task each day. If you're, if you're really sad, then your work is going to be much harder that day. If you're really happy, your work will be much easier that day. That emotions have a very loud or controlling part of our life. They influence how we speak to one another. They influence how we eat. They influence so much of our life that, that they're just like this loud voice in our lives. But here's the other thing about emotions. They change more rapidly than the weather in northwest Pennsylvania. I, I love calling my, my dad the other day, or, or, or last year I was talking to him, and he's like, how's the weather day? I was like, well, it's sun shining now. This morning, though, it was snowing, and t t five minutes ago it was raining, and now it's sun shining. And then I called him back a half hour later and said, oh, by the way, it's cloudy now. And you can have it all in, in less than a 24-hour period. You can have every kind of weather there is around here. And it changes so rapidly. And our emotions change too. They're not stable, right? They're loud, but they change very often. And, and they can change on a dime. All you got to do is get one phone call. All you got to do is drop one glass of milk. You know, all you got to do is, is your dog not make it outside when they're supposed to make it outside. And your emotions can change on a dime, right? And so they're, they're not really trustworthy. They, you, they'll, they'll be there, but they're loud, but they're, going, they're apt to change very quickly. Emotions can also be manipulated, right? This is what the entire idea behind advertisements is, right? How to manipulate someone's emotion so they will do whatever it is they want you to do, right? They, they, they try to make you feel bad. They try to make you feel envious. They try to make you feel all kinds of things so that you will buy or not buy particular products. They try to make you feel safe. It's, it's all about manipulating your emotions. And you can manipulate your own emotions, right? You know, if, if you have a cup of coffee, you feel better. If you don't have a cup of coffee, you will feel worse. There's all kinds of ways that you can control these things that are raging inside of you, that are screaming at you and controlling your life. And one of the most important things I'm, I, I like to point out to people 
is that emotions lie, right? We're led by a world today that goes, well, I feel, right? Well, I don't care how you feel. That, that's fine, but your emotions may be lying to you, right? I, I, I just know he hates me. Well, maybe he does, maybe he doesn't. You're, you can't trust your emotions, really, because they lie, and they lie a lot to us. They tell us things about ourselves and about our world that is just not true. And so this is something that we deal with the human existence, uh, that our emotions, they're, they're loud, they change, they can be manipulated, and they often lie to us. And so when you feel something, you need to always be a little bit on guard with your emotions. Uh, it might be true, it might not. It might be manipulated. It might change very quickly if you find out a little bit more information. And so always listen. You, you have these things, but always be careful with your emotions. But here's a truth. Disciples, we're talking about, you know, he, Jesus says, if you hear these things, you are truly my disciples. And if you're my disciples, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. And if you're free, you're free indeed. Disciples can live in freedom from five crushing emotions. There's, there's, there's probably more. This is not an exhaustive list, but there's five emotions I want to look at. It's not that it mean we don't have these emotions. Let me just say that. We do have these emotions, and, and we will struggle maybe at times with these emotions. But we, because we've been set free, we have, we have some ammunition. We have some, some, some ways we can deal with some of the most crushing emotions that come on humanity. All right? And so the first one is, is we, are, um, we can be emotionally free. We can be free from the emotion of fear, right? Much of the world right now lives in fear. It's probably one of the most dominating uh, emotions that are out there. But in Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. That one of the things that God has set us free from is this overwhelming fear. Now, the one fear, the number one fear that probably all humanity deals with at some point or another is, is the ultimate fear, is the fear caused by death, right? This is, this is the, the great hunter of humanity, right? That, that we realize that death is, is stalking us, that it's a reality of life, whether it's our own personal death or the death of someone close to us, that, that this is something we deal with. There's many in our congregation that this point today, uh, they understand it, uh, are a lot closer to this than they were last Sunday at this time, right? That this is a reality of life. Well, in Matthew's gospel, um, it tells us, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body. So it tells us not to be afraid of death, really. That, that, that there's one fear we should have, and that's the fear of God. And when you have that one fear rightly, all other fears pretty much disappear. They're, they're taken care of. You don't have to fear anything else if you're in a right relationship with God. He gave us not a spirit of fear, right? Because he's freed us spiritually and he's freed us religiously. 
But we have certain emotions associated with this. We struggle with sadness and grief and doubt. We have those emotions, right? But the Bible tells us that when it comes to death, we don't grieve. We're not sad like those who have no hope. And so I had the opportunity to talk with families this week and offer them the hope of salvation, right? You can be saved from your grief. You can, that this grief and this sadness that you're dealing with, it can be mitigated by the hope that is found in Christ. What a blessing to live in that freedom. And we can sit around and talk about loved ones and go, you know, this is sad. I am grieving, but it's not as bad as it can be. Because I got hope. God has set us free from this fear of death, that God is taking care of death, that he's given us resurrection, and we can live with a freedom in the worst moments of life that other people can have. To be quite honest with you, when I'm in those moments, I wonder, how do people who don't understand the freedom that comes with salvation in these moments, how do they make it through these moments? If you have no hope, if you have no thing to look forward to, if you don't believe in life after death, how do you make it? It's got to be such a burden. And I'm so glad that, yes, we struggle with those. Even we doubt. We, we struggle at times that, that when we deal with the death of someone or our own death, that's when our faith is really engaged and like, I really hope, I really believe, I, 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 I'm putting my faith in this this thing in Christ, that there's something more like he said there was. But we struggle with those things differently, that those emotions, though they're loud and though they're tough and though we go through them, that's what we do. We go through them because we're free to move through them to the other side and not crushed by the fear of death. There's another fear that uh, we often deal with, and we may not think about it, though, but it's a fear called by religion, right? That, that religion, religious practice, when we, when we have to rely on our self-efforts, when we have to rely on doing enough, that is a burden. There's a verse in, in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, it says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death we might destroy the one that has the power of death, that the devil and and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now it talks about us being slaves to this fear of death, but I I think part of that too is, is the fear of death because we want to make amends with God because we're afraid of death. We rely on religious practice, this lifelong slavery to try to try to make sure we can inherit life eternal. The, one of those universal thoughts is that there's this afterlife and you have to do something to get there. You have to earn that afterlife. And that's what religion is. There's probably not a, a, a more famous person who understood and really struggled with the fear of death than Martin Luther himself. The entire Protestant Reformation, which we are uh, you know, the product of is because Luther was overwhelmed with fear, and it was the fear that was born out because of his religious practice. It says that that religion has the potential of producing fear, and he said, "Well, I find out when I die 
that I've done too little. That's the fear. Have I done enough? And I've sat beside a lot of people who go, man, I hope I've done enough. I hope I've done enough. And this haunted Martin Luther, the 16th century Catholic monk and priest Martin Luther knew how this fear could wreak havoc on one's faith. A truly honest about his own sins. One self-righteous, only the self-righteous will find comfort in a system that encourages earning salvation. Notably, it was the self-righteous that Jesus particularly uh, chastised. Martin Luther, he was dedicated monk, and, and he would spend hours and hours in prayer, and hours and hours in fasting, and would do all these things, and he would get up and he'd go, you know, I just spent three hours in prayer. I'm sure I could have done 10 more minutes. I know I could have done more. And he was so always, he was never sure that he'd done enough because he knew he could always do more. This is what he says. He says, for I had hoped I might find peace for my, of conscience with my fasts and my prayers and the vigils with which I'm miserably attached to my body. But the more I uh, sweated it out like this, the less peace and tranquility I knew. And his religion terrified him because he is always asking this question, have I done enough? Surely I could have done more. And if I could have done more, then I've not done enough. And so the more he did, the worse off he got. He experienced the fear of religion. What a great freedom to say, I don't have to. Jesus paid it all. Jesus did it all. I don't have to do enough. Jesus did enough. And I don't have to berate myself for religion. I'm released from that fear. I never have to ask myself, man, I hope I did enough. I never have to ask that question because Jesus was enough. As John said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. What a great freedom we get to walk in. And so I don't have to live, I can live assured instead of haunted by my fear of religion. One of the other emotional freedoms that kind of attach itself to this is the freedom from guilt. Right? So when I don't have to worry about have I done enough, you know, I don't have to be guilty. There's an interesting verse in 2 Corinthians 7.10 I hope that we'll understand. It says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And so there's, a, there's an understanding I, I hope I want you to get today when we talk about grief and conviction, or, or guilt and conviction, not grief, guilt. Because we're free from guilt. Now, back in the day, we used to have this thing called records. I know they're coming back into vogue now, right? They're, they're coming back. And, and I'm really sad about that because I used to have uh, a Michael Jackson Thriller album. I threw it away because I thought they were gone and would never come back. It probably is worth a little bit of money today if I'd have kept that record. Well, back in the day... Before the big albums, they used to have a 45, and there was a one side that was the song that you wanted, and there was always a B-side, right, of some of the songs you didn't want. And, uh, and so what I want you to understand is when it comes to 
Um, here we go. Guilt. Guilt is the B-side of pride. Pride on one side is self-righteousness and arrogance. And pride is the person who says, you know what? I've done enough. I, 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 I've, I've done what I need to do. I, I've been good enough. Think about the story of uh, the Pharisee and the sinner in the Bible where they're praying. You know, and the sinner throws himself on the ground and he, he pleads with God to be gracious to him because he knows he's a sinner. And then the Pharisee stands up and says, dear God, I'm so glad I'm not like him. I, I, I've, I've done all the things I need to do. That's pride. But guilt is the B-side of pride. It's the other side. Because what guilt says is, no, I could have done better. I know I should have done better. I feel guilty because I haven't lived up to my own expectations of myself. And so we can be free from that because we don't have to do those things, right? We're, we're free from religion, so we don't have to be guilty for not living up. But you may ask the question, well, shouldn't we feel bad when we sin? Shouldn't, shouldn't we have some, some regret? Shouldn't there be something about us that, that makes us feel bad? Well, yeah, but, but guilt and conviction are two different things. We should be convicted. We should experience the conviction of the Holy Spirit when he points out you did something wrong. But guilt is a little bit different. And, and here's how I'd like to define that. Guilt leads one to turn to self to do better. When we feel guilty, we go, you know what? I messed up. I can do better. I'm going to do better. You know, I, I, I'm just going to, next time I'm not going to say that. You know, next time I'm not going to have an angry outburst. Next time I'm not going to curse. Next time I'm not going to do whatever it is I want to do. And we turn to ourselves for more self-effort, right? I know I can do better. I'm going to do better. I'm just going to try harder. Conviction, on the other hand, leads us, leads one to God to repent and confess and love. Yes, I messed up. God, I need your help. Yes, I did something wrong. God, I agree what I did was wrong. That's confession. I agree with you about what I did was wrong. That was a sin before you, God. Please be merciful. Please be forgiving, right? And, and we turn and we throw ourselves on His mercy and His grace and His forgiveness. And what it causes us to do is love God more. Because he's merciful and grateful. We don't turn to our own self-effort. We turn to what God had done. And so that's the difference I would like to draw between guilt and conviction. Because here's what guilt does. It's really not about doing better. When we go, oh, I just got to do better. I just got to do better. I, I, I just, I have this expectation, this pride of myself that I can be better. And so I try to do better. And living and following and serving God is not about doing better. It's really about loving God more. That's really, when I love God more, then I do better. But it's not doing better for itself. It's just, I'm going to love God who's merciful and gracious and has set me free. Because I realize this, that every sin is an act of hating God. And so if I love God more, I hate God less. And I will sin less because I'm not acting in my hatred towards God because I love him. And so it's really not about self-effort. It's about just learning to love God more. One of the major emotions that humanity deals with is anxiety or worry. 
I did a little research on this, found it quite shocking that it, uh, according to some, some statistics I saw, 20% of Americans struggle with some kind of anxiety disorder. 20% of our population as Americans. Worldwide, 4% of the, of the world deals with anxiety disorders. But in, a, but in the U.S., we have an epidemic uh, of struggling with anxiety and worry. And uh, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do we feel anxious at times? Yes. Do we struggle with worry at times? Yes. But we can have access to a freedom that a lot of people don't. Um, and so there's, there's three particular common anxieties or worries that I'd like to just kind of point out. First one is the anxiety of provision. Jesus talks about this in a famous passage in Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be reading this pretty soon. You'll probably catch, remember the story where he says, uh, verses 20, I'm going to read a couple of verses from that. It says, therefore I tell you, in Matthew 6, 25 through 33, it says, Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is, it, is not life more than food and body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they are? Verse uh, 31 goes on and says, Therefore, don't be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Verse 33 says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So there's a lot of people in the world who, who worry about provision. You're like, What am I going to eat? What am I going to wear? Where am I going to live? And, and this becomes an anxiety for them. And, and the Bible assures us that the Father will provide, keyword, what we need right? Maybe not what we want, but what we need. He, he assures us that he loves us and he's going to take care of us. And so you and I, as his children, can, can battle that, that worry of provision, knowing that God has promised over and over to provide for our needs. Another anxiety is the, is the anxiety of possession. It's the opposite side. So there's, there's, worry, there's people who worry about having enough the other extreme of that is those who have a lot, and, and they worry about keeping what they got <laughs> and how to take care of all that they have. Think about the rich young ruler in John chapter 19. Uh, he's like, he's done all this. He's, he's been religious, right? And he goes, what must I do? And he goes, give all that you've got. Uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 19. So give all you've got and, and, and sell it and then come follow me. And he walks away because... It, Jesus pointed out that he's, he's worried about his stuff. And Jesus says an amazing thing right after that. In verse 23, he says, And Jesus said to the disciples, Truly, I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. It's like that the worry of these possessions they have can keep them out of the kingdom. In Matthew 13, 22, Jesus is talking about the parable of the sower and the soils, and he describes uh, one of the soils, and he says, 
and for that was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And so there are those who worry about having possessions or about their provision, but there's a whole another group of people on the other spectrum that they're all worried and anxious about and care about the possessions that they have. And so they, they worry about keeping them and taking care of them and making sure that they're secure because they put their security and their faith in those possessions. Oh, my 401k just fell. How am I going to make it? Right? Instead of they worry about those things. And then the Third common anxiety is the worry of possibilities. Jesus finishes out Matthew 6 after he talks about the, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and the seek versus kingdom. In verse 34 he says this, Therefore don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so many of us look at the world, so many people look at the well, what if this happens? Well, what if he gets elected? What if, what if that happens? What if the stock market crashes? What, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And we look at all the possibilities that tomorrow may bring, and we live in constant anxiety and worry about what may happen. And it may happen, or what we don't think may happen. We don't know. And what I've realized with people is the further down the road they try to think, the further down the road they try to think about what possibly could happen, the further down they go, the higher their anxiety goes. You know, so when you start projecting out a year from now and five years now and ten years from now, people are just like, the whole thing could be up in shambles. Yeah, it could be. It might. Right? He said, don't worry about tomorrow. Just today. Just live in the freedom you have today. And trust me, right? I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to look out for you. I got a plan, right? I, I, I'm, I'm driving the ship. <laughs> Just relax. Enjoy the freedom of today. And trust me for tomorrow. And what a freedom that is. And it's hard, and we wrestle, and we struggle, and this is part of our existence. But we have a hope for tomorrow that other people don't. And we have someone who sits on the throne that is guiding the ship. And we can trust him. One of the other crushing uh, emotions that, that plague humanity is loneliness. And we can have a freedom from that too. There's numerous passages within the scripture where Jesus promises not to leave us alone. We may be alone, but we don't have to be lonely. Um, and because it talks about Jesus is closer than a friend, that he cares for us. John 14, 17 through 18, he's get, Jesus is getting ready to leave the disciples, and he says, uh, the spirit of truth, the word, uh, the world cannot receive him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he abides with you and will be with you. And he promises, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Matthew 28, 20. Uh, Jesus ends the Great Commission telling us to go make disciples of all the world. And he, and he closes his last little caption and he goes, uh, teaching them to observe all that I command you. And behold, behold, and Jesus says those words like, pay attention. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So that tomorrow that we're worrying about, Jesus is already there waiting for us. 
right? He's going to be with us to the end of the age. We may be alone, but we don't have to be lonely. That we have someone who's closer than a brother who abides within us. Psalm 23 verse 4 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Because for thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I have the presence of God. And so whatever life brings, whatever all those possibilities might be, I live in the freedom of knowing I'm not alone. One of the greatest comforts to humanity is that saying, I'm not alone. That's why I actually believe when we get to hell, a lot of people like to, to like pick this picture of hell as this big kind of frat party down there. You know, I'm going to be down there with all my friends and we're going to be laughing it up, yucking it up. I don't think so. I think in hell, you'll be absolutely alone. There may be a million, million, million little cells and you're in solitary confinement with no one else. Because even in hell, if we were able to look at someone else and go, at least I'm not alone, there would be comfort for us. Because that's the most comforting words in all of humanity. That no matter how bad it gets, if you can look and say, well, at least I'm not alone, there's comfort in that. And we live our lives by that saying, and I believe in hell, you won't be able to say that. Because the Bible teaches us, even in Genesis, when man was created, it's not good for man to be alone. And so Jesus and God makes this promise, I will free you from the worst thing that can happen, loneliness. Because I'm always going to be with you. And no matter what you face, you can always say, at least I'm not alone. At least I'm not alone. Thankfully, we live that out and get to live that out because we have one another. Two, <laughs> the blessings of God is found in one another. And the final emotion, despair, hopelessness. This crushes more people than any, anything in the world today. We talk often about the, the, the suicide rates that plague our country right now. They're probably at the highest level that they've ever been. We talk about because we have denied that we're creators, we're, we have a creator. We were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. And because we're created, we have, we have a authority over us, but we also have a value because God made us, and we also have purpose. And when you divorce yourself of your creator, you have no purpose, you have no value, and you have no authority over you, you live a life of absolute despair. I don't matter. I'm an accident. I got no purpose. I got no value, and I got nobody to answer to. So why am I here? Right? The utter despair. We live in a tough world. We live in a world that bangs in on us. We live in a fallen world. We suffer. Interestingly enough, next week we're going to start talking about suffering because that's part of the discipleship. That's part of being a disciple is suffering in this world. But we don't have to suffer without hope. We don't have to be hopeless. We don't have to give in to despair. I'm, I'm just going to slowly read you a verse, a couple of verses from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. Just let these words fill you with hope. I don't know what everybody's going through. I know what some of you are going through. I know some of you are struggling with despair 
and hopelessness and sadness and grief. Some of you are experiencing guilt, possibly, or conviction. You may feel alone this morning. There's all these emotions, and everything you've heard me to say has been filtered through whatever emotion is screaming in your face right now, right? I understand life is tough. But we, Jesus says, if you know me, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And when you're free, you're free indeed. You're free spiritually. You're free from religion. And you're free to confront these emotions of life in a whole different manner. So I want you to hear these verses this morning. As we prepare and think about the table where Jesus bought our freedom. We use the word redemption and justification, talk about salvation. It means he bought us out of slavery. and He made us right with God. We've been redeemed, bought out of slavery. We've been set free and we've been justified, right? That our legal, the legal case that God had against us has been set right. And so we can live free from religion and free from a lot of the emotions that, that haunt us. We can deal with them differently. Here's the verses as we prepare. Verse 31, starting with verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? If it is God who justifies, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed the day all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Jesus says, if you know me, you know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. We're free spiritually. We're free religiously, and we're free to live this life different than anyone else because we got an answer for all those things that would crush us and crush our spirit because we know the one who died, yet more, was resurrected. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. And as it says, if God's for us, who can be against us? I'm going to ask Elaine to come.